Okay, well, we're going to continue into our Advent series that we're calling Arrival today. So if you have your Bibles, there's really three places you can uh, maybe earmark to be ready. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9. That's going to be uh, where we'll spend the majority of our time. But we're also going to be in Matthew chapter 4 and then 2 Peter chapter 3. So uh, we'll turn there in, in time. But we're, we're calling this the Arrival series because we think of this time of year as Advent season, and that's what that word Advent means. It means arrival, and so this is the time of year in which Christians emphasize the first Advent of Christ. We, of course, uh, think of the birth of Christ as his first arrival, and we think of the second Advent, the second arrival, that is something that is still ahead of us, the return of Christ. And so, it's, it's an amazing time of year. We talked about last week how we get wrapped up in so many different things that it's, it's just easy to overlook the true meaning of Christmas because so much is going on with Christmas in our culture. So the true meaning of Christmas, though, is about the arrival of the Messiah into his creation. So what are we saying? What are we saying when we say Jesus was born? Well, according to the Bible, we are saying that God became flesh. What an amazing truth. It's so profound. There's, there's mystery there. We can't fully wrap our minds around this concept. We can only attempt to do so. We are limited, ultimately. God is infinite. And so when we try to wrap our minds around something that is infinite, something that is God, it's intimidating. It's overwhelming. But, man, God became flesh. He, he entered his creation. He didn't cease to become God, but he started being man. We're talking about Jesus. And so, again, just an amazing, amazing truth that is at the foundation of Christianity. So is that, the, the big question we keep coming back to, is that what you're celebrating? Everyone seems to be celebrating Christmas this year, but is that what you, as a Christian, are celebrating, the arrival of of Jesus into his creation. If that's what it's if that's the hope that you're looking for this year, then that's the hope that will comfort you. But if you are looking for the hope that lies within secular Christ, or Christmas, secular Christmas, the, the hope is just artificial there. And so that that's what makes this time of year so so frustrating. Remember again that dichotomy I suggested to you last week. We have we have the the Christian Christmas taking place this time of year, but alongside that we have this other holiday that's also happening simultaneously with its rituals and its customs and its gatherings. It's secular Christmas that is void of the hope of Jesus and the gospel, but it's still this holiday that we can't deny that exists. One has Christian hope and the other one has all sorts of different meanings that are kind of hard to grab hold of. And so I'll have to admit, again, just like I did last week, secular Christmas is fun. There are a lot of things about secular Christmas that I enjoy. I just watched Home Alone for the first time last night with my boys. So secular Christmas has officially begun for me. I enjoyed every second of it until I fell asleep in the latter third of it. <laughs> but if you are looking for spiritual strength, for spiritual life and the hope in, in our Christian faith, if you're looking for that type of hope and, and you go looking for it in secular Christmas celebrations, it, it can be very crushing because, again, the hope that lies within these secular 
uh, Christmas gatherings and what they're focused around, it can be, it can be crushing there because it's, it's a fleeting hope that the secular Christmas is emphasizing. It can be a depressing time of year. And, and the reason I think that secular Christmas can be so frustrating for many people in our society is because how could it possibly live up to the hype? What holiday gets hyped more than Christmas? I mean, it, we start the hype right as soon as we put up our costume at Halloween. We begin the hype for Christmas. Many of you have you started listening to Christmas music again. You, you started into immediately into your Christmas shopping or already had half of it done by that point. And it's all building towards this secular hope of the best day ever. December 25th, according to the secular Christmas, is to be the best day ever, the best day of the year. And if you fail to deliver upon the best day ever, it can be devastating for people. And that's why it can be so depressing. Like, you know how much pressure grandmas are under right now at this time of year? Trying to put on the, the perfect Christmas Day feast? There's a ton of pressure there. There's a lot of hope wrapped up in that ham that they are, that they are so carefully selecting in the supermarket. I mean, as if we're going to kick grandma to the curb if the ham's not that good or a little dry that year. Can you imagine sitting down at the table with family and you take that bite of ham and look at grandma and say, what is this, dog food? I dare you. <laughs> Of course, uh, no matter what that ham tastes like, this is the best ham I've ever had, Grandma. Thank you, right? But there's a lot of hope wrapped up in that ham. There's a lot of hope wrapped up in, in, in the Christmas shopping and getting just the right gift. Christmas shopping and gift giving is supposed to be really fun, but it can be so stressful. You ever watch, um, of course, all of you have watched America's, America's Funniest Home Videos because it's been around uh, most all of our lives, right? And AFV always has the Christmas special around this time of year, and they show all of the, the home funny videos uh, about Christmas celebrations and stuff, and they always have this one segment of, like, package opening fails where like the kid opens up the package and it's like the wrong thing or, or not what they wanted or a prank gift and so they throw it down and they storm off and stomp and and cry I think it becomes America's saddest home videos when, I, when you see that right anytime I'm watching that with my boys I'm always like pay attention if you ever act like that when you open a gift the very next gift you open will be death and it will be from me don't you ever do that right little brat you know, I can't stand what kids act like that. I always use it as a teaching lesson. It's like, we were just going to watch AFE for fun. Now dad's lecturing us. <laughs> it did happen uh, to Nolan one year that uh, we were at a gift exchange, and his present was swapped out. With, it, the gift that he opened was not meant for him. It was, a, it was girls to, girl toys. You know, I got three boys. We don't know anything about girl toys, right? We open presents like knives and weapons and fun games. <laughs> we don't know anything about girl toys in my house. And so he opens it up, and it's this girl toy. And, and I, I can see the look on his face of confusion, and he looks at me, and then he's like, thank you very much <laughs> for this gift. I so appreciate it. I was like, well done, yes. That is exact. I don't care if they wrapped up trash and gave it to you. You're going to say thank you and give them a hug. Uh, but, you know, we build up all of this hype towards Christmas. And, and, if, and if the hope you have 
and the Christmas season is wrapped up in having the best day ever, it's exhausting. It's, it's not life-giving, it's exhausting. You always have to outdo the previous year, and it's madness. You just can't do it. You can't keep it up. And so it can be such a devastating time of year. People feel left out of the hype sometimes. When it becomes about the hype and you don't get to involve, involve yourself in the hype, sometimes people just get overwhelmingly stressed. They, they get depressed. Anxiety tends to peak around this time of year. That's just fact. Uh, suicide rates increase. Depression just consumes people. And so I, I want to use these four weeks in our arrival series to encourage you, don't get lost in the hype. Don't get lost in having the best day ever. That hope is fleeting. That hope is artificial. That hope will frustrate you if that's what you're after. But we want to be wrapped up in the Christian Christmas and the true meaning that is meant to be emphasized at this time of year so that we can have the true hope that that truth emphasizes. And the truth that we are talking about, this hope, is it's rock solid. It's rooted in history. It's rooted in prophecy. It's rooted in fulfillment of that prophecy. And all of this is found in the Word of God. It can't be shaken by secular Christmas and all of its rituals, gatherings, and customs. But maybe, maybe if you press into the true hope of Christmas that's in God's Word, it can sustain you through a lot of that frustration that exists around this time of year. So today we're going to do three things. We're going to do three things. We're going to look at a popular Old Testament prophecy that is associated with Christmas today. So that prophecy is in Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to look at that prophecy. I can't exhaust everything that's in that in those seven verses. There's a ton there, but I want to read it to you because it's so familiar to us around this time of year. The second thing I want to do is I want to look at the fulfillment of that prophecy. And the fulfillment of that prophecy we find in Matthew chapter 4. That's why I had you uh, note that earlier. And then third and, and finally, I want us to look at how that prophecy and that fulfillment teach us how to live with true hope today. So turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Let me give you a little bit of a crash course in Isaiah. Isaiah is just... It's this really intimidating Old Testament book. It's, Isaiah is one of the major prophets. That's, what, that's how we refer to Isaiah because we, we call them major and minor prophets, not because the truth is big here and, and not so big here. That's not why we call it that. We call them the major prophets because they have more content. All right, so Isaiah is one of those Old Testament prophetic books that has a lot of content. The minor prophets are just shorter. That's why we call them minor. So Isaiah was written in, uh, Isaiah lived in the 8th century B.C. So you're talk, talking roughly seven, 800 years before the time of Christ. Isaiah is writing his prophecies. And so by the time Isaiah is in his heyday, Israel's past its heyday. Okay, when you think of the golden age of Israel, we think of King David. All of the Jews would have thought of the golden era of Israel as the days of King David. And it, the second best era of time would have been his son Solomon, King Solomon. And really after David and Solomon, things went downhill. Well, David's long gone by the time Isaiah's around. King Solomon is long gone by the time Isaiah is around. And Israel... The peak is behind them. They've been going downhill. Israel, actually, by the time Isaiah is prophesying, Israel had split into two kingdoms. 
And so if you can look at my, my map that doesn't exist here that I always point to, if you're new here, there's a pretend map behind me. Just to keep, always keep that in mind. But if this is a map of Israel, the top portion split into its own kingdom. And they said, we are Israel. So the northern kingdom was known as Israel. But the southern kingdom, where the temple would be, Jerusalem, and those towns, Bethlehem, that was known as Judah, the southern kingdom. And so by the time Isaiah is writing his prophecies, there's really, it's thought of as kind of two different nations there, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom in Isaiah's day. And so Isaiah, in, in, he, he prophesied, or I'm sorry, Isaiah, before he uh, wrote prophecies, he saw the invasion of the northern kingdom. The Assyrians attacked the northern kingdom and took Israel, the northern kingdom, into captivity. So Isaiah would have lived in the days in which he could have witnessed that. And so uh, the northern kingdom, they thought they were in this alliance with, with the Assyrians. And the Assyrians were like, yeah, we're in alliance with you. We'll take your tribute tax and that sort of thing. Oh, and by the way, we're going to go ahead and conquer you anyway. And that's, that's basically what happened. Well, Isaiah was given prophecies from God that he wrote down and gave to God's people. And he prophesied that Judah, that southern kingdom, would also be conquered just like the northern kingdom. He prophesied that, and after he died, he didn't get to see the prophecy fulfilled. After he died, that prophecy was fulfilled. It, it proved to be true. And so in 586, 587 B.C., you may remember uh, King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon they took over the southern kingdom. They took over Judah and took God's people into slavery again. They had been in slavery been enslaved before, right? But now they're taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar for 70 years. And Isaiah also, so that, that prophecy came true. He also prophesied that there would be a restoration of Judah. That, and, and sure enough, that came true long after Isaiah was dead. And he prophesied that God would raise up a pagan leader to free God's people from slavery. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. King Cyrus, he uh, released God's people. And you can read about these events in, books, in the books of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, whenever they returned to Israel and uh, to Judah and, and began to rebuild the, the town and the city walls and the, and the temple. And so his prophecies... Uh, they, they, they have this great reputation because you see the prophecy and you see the fulfillment in, in Scripture. Well, Isaiah also prophesied about a more distant day. He prophesied that one day a Redeemer would arrive. And this Redeemer would rescue God's people from sin. And so that's the prophecy we're going to study today, and that's the prophecy that Jesus fulfilled, which is why this time of year... Some of what we read in this prophecy is often found on your Christmas card. You'll hear it in the songs that we sing and the songs that choirs sing and, the, and their Christmas cantatas and things like that. And we're going to look at that text, and it's in Isaiah chapter 9, and Jesus will fulfill this prophecy. So let me just read to you verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to take the, the, the first seven verses, but I, want, I just want to read to you verse 1. Because this can be overwhelming. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, 
the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, there, I just want you to make a mental note of two of the towns that were mentioned there. Zebulun and Naphtali. I've never been to any town called Zebulun. I've never been to anywhere called Naphtali. They're very strange names, aren't they? I want you to take a mental note of those two names, Zebulun, Naphtali, maybe circle them. But they were living in bad days in Isaiah's time. Man, Zebulun and Naphtali were just full of darkness. And so he is prophesying about what would happen in a distant time in that area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Currently, they're living in darkness, but he's saying, God has given me a prophecy. Light will shine in this darkness eventually. Here's what he said. Let's now take two through seven. Again, we're not going to unpack everything that's in the, these seven verses. It's overwhelming. There's a ton here. But there's going to come a point in which you're like, hey, I recognize some of these verses. I recognize uh, singing these. So let, let's, let's read. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will, burn, will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us... A child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Okay, that's a lot. But you might have recognized some of those, right? Well, again, in Isaiah's day, Zebulun, Naphtali, it was just in darkness. It was just in darkness. They were living in spiritual darkness. They have been overcome with darkness. And again, that dark and light theme, that dark and light contrast used again here in Isaiah. It's all over scripture, but it's, it's emphasized here yet again. Because the Jews in Isaiah's day, they had began to, to, begun to neglect and forget God's word. They, they began to live in a time in which they would just distance themselves themselves from the law of God. And what they started to do, instead of taking their cues from the word of God, instead of living as God instructed them to live, they began to take their cues from the nations around them. So they began to look at the, the beliefs of different nations and, and believe what they were believing. Look at the customs and the behavior of the nations around them, and they began to adopt those customs and those behaviors and walk away from that which was to make them distinct and holy and set apart. So they weren't sticking out anymore as God's people. Remember, that's why God gave his people the law, so they would be different than everyone around them. So they would stick out. That's, that's its purpose, one of its purposes. But they started blending in with the countries around them, and, and they began to walk in the darkness. They got lost in the darkness. They stumbled badly 
and the darkness. It was hard to distinguish them from the nations around them in Isaiah's day. This is why the dark light theme is, is so important in Scripture. It's such a great teaching analogy. What does darkness do to you? It takes away one of your most important senses. When it's dark, you can't see. <laughs> so we, we, we like to see, especially when we're trying to do stuff. Last week, I was doing laundry in the basement, and I had a, a couple of baskets of clothes. I was trying to carry too much, but I didn't want to take two trips, like when you're getting the groceries out of the car. You want to grab all of it. So I, was, I had to walk through my basement to get to the utility room where the washer and dryer are, and it was dark. The lights weren't on. I'm in the basement, but I'm like, I've walked through this basement a thousand times. I could do it blindfolded. I don't need to see. What I didn't know is that in the darkness in front of me, Emmett had left every single pillow and blanket, maybe in our entire household, in a fort in front of me. And so as I tried to walk in the darkness, I crashed and burned. The good news is I crashed and burned onto pillows and blankets. <laughs> but as I was laying there on the ground with the dog licking my face, I thought, man, I wish I would have turned on the light. Now i got to pick up all these clothes and yell at Emmett later for not picking up his mess. <laughs> but the message in Scripture is crystal clear. The, the reason this dark and light theme is used is because it's a great teaching illustration Believers today, it's, it's the same as it is then, right? If you distance yourself from the word of God as a believer, then you're creating distance between you and the hope that is in Scripture. And if you start to lose sight of that hope, if you start to lose sight of those provisions that God has for us, if you start to lose sight of those promises that he has for you and I, then you'll start hoping in, in other promises in the world. You'll start looking for other promises. You'll start looking like the world around you and that which was supposed to make you distinct that which was supposed to make you different and set apart isn't there anymore. You'll start buying into what the world says you should buy into. You can't say no to the world anymore. You start taking your cues from the world around you. And when that happens, God's judgment will come upon us and individually and collectively, just like it came upon the people in the day of Israel. And so, you know, each and every Sunday that we gather, I know that some of you, like, you feel like you're in the darkness right now. As, as far as like spiritual hope and truth and light and gospel, like, like you, I know that there are times in which you come to church and you're feeling it and it's great and it's a worshipful experience. Other times you come to church just because you're just associating with Christianity. It's just the way the world works. Sometimes you're in the zone and sometimes you're not. And sometimes you go through seasons of life, entire seasons of life, in which you just feel like you're in the pit. You're just living in the darkness. You're stumbling in the darkness. You know, I, I meet with people who find themselves in the pit weekly. It's just part of my job. I've found myself there several times as well. And, and here's, here's a common truth, that if you, if you feel like you're living in the spiritual darkness, here's the biggest temptation you'll deal with. You think that it'll never be any other way but darkness. When you're in the darkness, when you're in the pit, of depression and despair, and you have distanced yourself from the way, uh, ways of God and from the word of God, you will start to buy into this truth that it'll just never be different. You'll never have that life of light. You'll, you grow accustomed to the darkness and the difficulties that exist there. Pessimism just takes over. It seems like it'll never, ever go away. Remember, this is the great thing about the book of Isaiah. 
he is writing to a group, a mass group of people who are in that frame of mind. They have lived in the darkness so long and drifted so far away, they just think that's all that there will ever be. Darkness is here to stay in our lives and it will always be darkness. And so he is calling upon them to remember the light. Remember the light. That's the purpose of this entire series. If you're lost in the darkness and you're, you're lost into the rituals and customs and celebrations of secular Christmas, I'm calling upon you to remember the light. Remember the light that this time of year is meant to be about. That's what Isaiah was trying to do to God's people, and they, they couldn't stand him. They couldn't stand him. They found him annoying. They drove him out. You notice in his prophecy, again, we can't exhaust everything that's there because we don't have the time. But he, he says that this light in this area of Zebulun and Naphtali, it's going to break through the darkness. And when it does, it'll be like the days, it'll be like on the day of Midian. Did you notice that? On the, it'll be like on the day of Midian when this light breaks through. I was reading that, like, what, what's the day of Midian? I did not know this off the top of my head. I had to start doing some research. I had to start doing some thinking. And so in the day of Midian, this is back in the book of Judges. And so you remember Gideon in the, in the book of Judges. He was one of those judges, and God called him to gather an army. And so he's like, okay, awesome, I'll gather an army. He gets 32,000 men to be a part of this army. It's a massive army. And God says, okay, good job, but... I don't want that many. Let's whittle that down. Uh, send 22,000 of them home. Now, I'm not a general in an army, and I've never been a general in an army, but if I'm going to fight in an army uh, against another army, with an army, I want a bigger army than the army that I'm facing, right? I want to have the biggest army possible. So God tells Gideon, send 22,000 of them home. And he's like, wow, what an act of faith that must have been to send that many soldiers home in preparation for an upcoming battle. But then God doesn't stop there. He says, you know, I want to whittle this down even more. And he whittles them down in a strange way. We can't get into all, into all that. But he, he, he sends another 9,700 of them home. He's down to 300 men. God says, perfect. That's the size of the army that you need to win this battle. What was Gideon thinking? Well, he was thinking that he's trusting in God. And so he says, oh, by the way, don't use good weaponry either. Use bad weapons. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's a remarkable story, a remarkable moment. But sure enough, with bad weapons, with a small army, they go in and they defeat the Midianites. Like, so, so they, they defeat them in the, in the most least likely way possible. So Isaiah is recalling this story to the minds of the people who would have grown up listening to the book of Judges being read to them. They would have, they would have perhaps even had this memorized. And, and so the, this light that shines through the darkness in Zebulun and Naphtali, it will arrive and begin to shine just like on the day of Midian. It, it, this, this lightness will overcome the darkness as on the day uh, uh, that battle against the, the Midianites. In the most least likely way possible, it will make no sense whatsoever that this should work. But it does. And he says, Here, here's what it's going to be like. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. A child. The birth of a child is how this light will overcome the darkness. His name shall be called, listen to these names, Wonderful Counselor. He'll be incredibly wise. His name shall be called Mighty God. Wow. 
he'll be God. His name shall be called Everlasting Father. That word father can also translate to author or creator. Everlasting creator. That's what his name will be called. His name shall be called Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his peace, there will be no end. His kingdom will be forevermore. Isaiah is saying, hey, I'm writing this to a group of people who are living in utter darkness. But you need to know, this darkness will not last forever. It will come to an end. And here's how. So, Christian Christmas, we're celebrating the fact that that prophecy, and many like it, that's one of several prophecies we could look at in the book of Isaiah. But that's, that's what we're celebrating this time of year, that that prophecy was fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Let's look at it. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. We're, we're going to read about a moment in Jesus' life. And at this point in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus has been baptized. The Holy Spirit has descended upon him like a dove. What happens right after that? The Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days and for 40 nights by Satan. That has just come to an end. His ministry is officially beginning. It's time to get to work. It's time to start preaching about the gospel. It's time to start doing miracles. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, at the very, very beginning of Jesus' ministry, here's what it says in Matthew 4, verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in a territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Sound familiar? So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time... Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, at, at Jesus' day, it was much like in the days of Isaiah, and that by Jesus' day, many had forgotten about the prophecies of Isaiah. In Jesus' day, many were living in darkness. In Jesus' day, many were living according to the customs of the countries surrounding them. They were living, living under Roman oppression, and they began to take their cues from Rome. They began to live like the Romans. In many cases, they begin to, to start to forget and distance themselves from the word of God and buy into what Rome was telling them to do and how to live. And that was a big point of controversy throughout the life of Jesus, we know. But centuries of darkness, depression, and oppression, it seemed like it would go on forever. People in Jesus' day, it just seemed like, well, this is just the way it's going to be forever. Darkness will just always be here and light will never come. But then, as Paul says in Galatians, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So the reason why I wanted to take a moment to look at Old Testament prophecy, and the reason I wanted to look how that prophecy was fulfilled in the New Testament is because it teaches you and I how we're supposed to live today. They were receiving these prophecies and receiving this fulfillment in the midst of this darkness. And the benefit of remembering Advent this time of year is that it forces us to remember that God keeps his promises. Even when it seems like he won't. 
even if it seems like he never will. He does. When he says he will do something, he will do it. He said he was going to send a son. He did send his son. And he did it in the most least likely way possible, just like he said he would. And he sent him right to the spot where he said he would on this planet Earth. This is how God's word strengthens us. This is the hope that we're supposed to press into, that, that hope that's rooted in history and prophecy and fulfillment. And that's how we are to be a light in the darkness that we live in now. See, now it's, it's our turn. It's our turn to live in the darkness as light. Remember, Jesus said to his followers that he was going to arrive again. And he made promises concerning that second arrival. He said to his, his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to re prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And so now it's our turn to live in the darkness with hope that's rooted in promises. So will we forget the word of God? Will we distance ourselves from the word of God? Will we take our cues from the world around us rather than the word of God that instructs us to live differently, to think differently, to believe differently? That instructs us to be holy like he is holy and that's different than how the world says to live? Will we, will we press into that truth, truth and live out that hope? We're supposed to live with this faithful anticipation of his second return. You know, that passage in 2 Peter chapter 3. That's a great homework text. And so if you have some devotional time tomorrow morning or later on this afternoon or before bed, I often give a homework text that will complement the sermon I'm preaching. Go look at 2 Peter chapter 3. Read it in its entirety. Peter is trying to encourage a bunch of Christians who are living in the darkness with this hope. He's instructing them to be a light in the darkness. And he's saying, listen, when you try to live out this hope, you're not living like the world around you. So if you don't if you don't bow down to the cues that the world's trying to give you, that's, that's going to be awkward. They're going to make fun of you. They're going to scoff at you for living this way. So he says he's, he's encouraging them, don't pay attention to the scoffers. But know this, the longer time goes, the more scoffers there will be. The longer time goes on, the, the louder they will be, and the more people will begin to live according to their own sinful desires, and the more people will begin to distance themselves from the word of God. They'll say things like, and I'm quoting Peter now, they'll say, where is the promise of his coming? And so then he says something really important. This is what I want you to think about. He says there's a reason. There's a reason for this. There is a reason that you live in this era of time that is so dark. It has a purpose. Isn't it nice to know that when you go through a dark time in life, according to the Bible, those dark times in your life have purpose? Otherwise, it would just seem so defeating that dark times in your life are there. Right? If they were just there because they're there and, and then you just die and that's it, that would be such a depressing existence. But God says to us through his word that when you go through dark seasons of life, there is purpose and meaning behind that. There is something that God is doing behind all of that. And so he, he instructs Peter to write and encourage Christians in that day to say, hey, prepare them for the scoffing. Prepare them that the world's going to become more worldly. And, and, and prepare them in a way that tell, uh, instructs them this season of time has purpose. It has meaning. Look here at, at verse 8 of chapter 3 of 2 Peter. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. There's a purpose for this darkness. There's a a purpose for the season of time. He is allowing people to respond to this message that this light came to preach. What did, what did Jesus, that light, and Zebulun and Naphtali, what did, he, what did he preach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this era of time that as we live in this darkness is time for us to hear and receive that calling. Have you heard this call to repent and believe in the gospel? And are you responding to it? This season of time in this darkness may feel miserable. It may feel like certain seasons of your life can be the worst that, that, you, that you would have ever imagined you would have to experience. But they have purpose. It's in those dark times that we reach out to God in ways that we never would. It's in those really dark times that we see that light shining the brightest, right? And that's why we celebrate Christmas in the darkest season of the year. It's our turn to walk in the darkness as the light. So utilize this era of time to hear this message and to anticipate his second coming and to live in a time of darkness as a light with hope and share that hope with others. Let's pray. Lord, as we walk into this time of communion together, Lord, I just pray that we would truly be focused on what matters most that we could truly contemplate the gospel with great clarity in our hearts and minds, Lord, and we know that we can only do this with, with your power. We just pray that, Lord, you the Spirit would, would enable us uh, to be illumined by your word, even difficult passages like Isaiah chapter 9, and amazing clear passages like Matthew 4. Lord, help us to be encouraged by this and and hear this gospel truth in a way that would impact how we live. Forgive us for the ways in which we try to blend into the world around us, Lord. We get so caught up in wanting to be accepted by that which is not holy. We get so caught up in wanting to be accepted by those who aren't you. Lord, allow us and enable us to repent of that, Lord, that we we can be uncomfortable in this darkness. Uh, but we can, we're meant to be the light in this darkness. And so, Lord, I pray that in this time of communion, we focus on that gospel that makes us this light and that it would all go to glorify you. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.